Acts chapter 12. It is Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at that text in Luke 19 in just a little bit, but I would like for us to start here in Acts chapter 12, because there is a significant connection between what happens here in Acts chapter 12 and Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Tuesday night I was talking to our How to Study the Bible uh, class, and I was telling them that sometimes when we examine even the most familiar passages of Scripture, that the Lord will give us fresh insights that we've never seen before. And they're so profound and so powerful that as we look at the text and as we study the text, we we just can't help but be amazed. That's the beauty of studying the Bible. And and I've told you this before, that, that the depth of truth in the Word of God is never exhausted. And as we study it in depth, and as we look over and over, we see that the message of God is, is intricate and it's connected and it's wonderful. Now, as Acts 12 opens, the church has begun its expansion to the Gentiles. And we know that the gospel now has, has had a tremendous impact in the third largest city in the world, Antioch, which is up in Syria. But as this happens, as the gospel goes out, there's a new wave of opposition. And as chapter 12 begins, and we'll read it in a minute, James, the apostle, one of the original 12, is, is the first disciple, the first of the 12 to be martyred. And because that thrilled the Jews, and because they had a thirst for more blood, Herod decides to arrest Peter, the most high-profile apostle. And he throws him in jail. And it looks like things are going to take a very ugly and very awful turn. But as is always the way with the Lord, God not only intervenes in a miraculous way to defend his children and to keep the gospel moving forward, but as he intervenes, the way he intervenes, the timing in which he intervenes shows an awesome spiritual truth. Now, I've been saved a long time. I've studied this passage many times. I've heard it preached many times. I don't tell you that to brag. I tell you that because in all the years that I've heard and studied this passage. I've never seen the connection that we're going to study this morning. And I tell you that only because it shows the brilliance of how the Lord works and because it's really, really cool. This is an amazing thing that has just impressed me and encouraged me and excited me all week as I've seen it. And I think we need to study it this morning. And and we need to worry maybe a little bit less about application this morning, even though we'll have some toward the end. And we just need to be awed by the power and the mercy and the love of God. Because that's what's here and that's what we're going to see. Let's read the text, starting in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. we got a lot to read this morning, so thank you for bringing your Bibles and read along as I do. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. 
and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, verse 8, to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Because remember, he'd had a vision in, verse, in chapter 10. When they passed through the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. Of course, Peter's out there. He continues to knock. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, every single detail that the Holy Spirit gave by inspiration to men who were writing this as he spoke to their hearts and they wrote it down. Every single detail is vitally important. Nothing is accidental and nothing is left out that should have been put in. The Bible is complete and we have to trust that the Holy Spirit gave us everything. Now that being said, one of the special indicators that we should look for when we study a text is when the Holy Spirit includes a detail that seems a little bit out of place. A, 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 a fact or a piece of information that, that seems, as we read, to kind of interrupt the flow of thought or, or seems superfluous to the passage. It doesn't seem like it fits. As we do that, our study will go deeper and our and our understanding will be more rich if we take time to understand those details because they're essential for that extra layer of knowledge. You remember uh, when you used to go to the mall and they'd have those magic eye pictures? Remember those things? And, and they just seem like a blob of, of kind of repetitive patterns, and then you'd stare at them, and then all of a sudden that 3D picture would pop out. That's what studying the Bible does. As we go deeper and we stare at it more and we study it more and we examine it more, all of a sudden, what we've seen so many times, it just pops out at us. And we see that, that extra layer of understanding that the Spirit has there. That's what we're seeing in the text. Look at verse 3 for a minute. We see that Peter is arrested. And at the start of verse 4, the narrative continues, when they had seized him. But in between... Peter, it says he gets arrested, and in between, and they seized him, the Spirit includes a little extra piece of information. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. See, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was very significant to the Jews, and its origin traced all the way back to the Exodus from Egypt in Exodus 12. The Lord told Israel that on the 12th plague, the last plague, all the firstborn sons of every house in Israel would be, de- would be put to death because Israel had hardened their hearts against God and they had resisted God. 
But he said, I will protect you. I will protect my people if you will take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on the wooden doorposts of your house. So when the angel comes to carry out this plague and, and to and to strike down the firstborn son of every house, when he sees the blood and he sees it covering your house, he will pass over because my mercy will be satisfied. My judgment will be satisfied because you have put the blood on the doorposts. And as you're waiting for this to happen, as you're waiting for the judgment and the forgiveness to take place, you are to eat the meat of the lamb, and you are to eat it with bitter herbs, which represent the, the harshness of your stay in Israel, excuse me, in Egypt, and you are to eat it with unleavened bread, because you're going to have to leave quickly. When Pharaoh says, you're going to go, go ahead, get out of my sight, you have to be prepared. So don't, as you prepare the bread, don't put yeast in it. Don't, don't allow it to have time to rise because suddenly you're going to have to go. Yeast in the Bible always represents sin. So he says, don't, don't make leavened bread. Don't put yeast in it and wait and sit back and wait for it to rise. When you celebrate the Passover meal, cook the lamb, eat the lamb, get the bitter herbs. They represent what you've done here. And take unleavened bread, bread that hasn't risen, and eat it as you go. And this will come to symbolize the bondage that you've been in here and how I'm going to deliver you. And that you need to walk in holiness. You need to walk free from sin. So God says we're going to establish the feast of unleavened bread and it will be a time of remembrance. It will be a time of calling my people to consecrate themselves before me. And it will be a yearly remembrance. For seven days... From the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan to the 21st. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Jewish day runs from dusk until dusk. So the Passover lamb was supposed to be killed right before the day ended. And as soon as the night began, follow me now, as soon as the night began, it would become the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, that seems like a strange command. And it seems odd that, that the Lord would give them that, but there's so much symbolism to it, especially as we see Christ's sacrifice, and especially as we get to Acts 12. Take your Bible and turn back a little bit to Luke chapter 19 for a moment. Luke chapter 19. And let's see some of the connections that the Lord makes that are so beautiful here. Peter was arrested at the time of unleavened bread. The Passover was about to begin. And when we see that, we remember that Jesus was also put to death at the time of Passover. So the, for the first time since Acts chapter 1, we have a frame of reference for time. We know that Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. But here we see, for the first time, that there's some time frame put to this because as we've gone through Acts, we haven't known how long things were taking. When we get to Acts chapter 12 and we see that it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we realize that Acts chapter 12 is exactly one year after the death of Jesus. Now the fact that the Holy Spirit put that fact in is not a coincidence in any way. In fact, when we compare what's going on in each text, and we put it in the framework of what happened in Exodus, 
all of a sudden the light goes on. All of a sudden we see these profound truths that God has given us that are so amazing. Look at Acts, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 19, start in verse 35. Jesus is, uh, tells them to get the donkey. They get the donkey and they start to walk toward the city. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, speaking of 70 AD, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave to you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, as, as Jesus approaches the city on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, many people surround him and praise him. And it's interesting in verse 38 that they almost quote Luke 2 when Jesus was born. They almost quote the angel's words verbatim there. They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they recognize him as the king who has been sent from the Lord. Now, some of the people that are yelling are true believers. Some of them are his true disciples who have followed him and been faithful to him. But others in the crowd have, have a selfish expectation. Primarily, they're hoping that he's going to be the king who's going to get them out from under the grip and the occupation of Rome. And they probably also hope that he's going to do something with these corrupt Pharisees who have been leading them wrong spiritually. But the whole reason Jesus Christ came to earth and the reason he's now entering Jerusalem in the final week before he's crucified was to offer deliverance from sin. And it was to offer redemption from the eternal penalty of sin. And it was to offer forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who believes. The people say, oh, give us peace. But they don't want the kind of peace that he's offering because he's offering eternal spiritual peace. But they're saying, give us peace from Rome. Give us peace from the government. Give us peace from a lot of things. But they don't understand that only peace he wants to give them at that point is the peace of being right with God. The peace that comes from repenting from our sins and yielding our hearts to the grace of God. That's why he weeps. That's why he looks at their spiritual blindness and said, you don't get it. You don't, you don't know what's going on. If you had only understood the time of a visitation, which to the day fits the prophecy of Daniel, then Daniel said it will be this many days until Messiah comes. And to the day, it was this day. They, they didn't get it. They didn't see it. They were spiritually blind because they wanted something else. And Jesus weeps. Notice that he's not harsh or judgmental here. You know, the world always says, well, Jesus, he had this message of love, but God is harsh. He just wants to 
hold you down and tell you what you can't do and be judgmental. And, and a God of love shouldn't do that. But there's nothing judgmental about what Jesus does here. If there was ever a time where he could have smacked people, it was right here. Instead, we see the heart of God. He doesn't desire that anyone would experience eternal death. He doesn't desire that anyone would be separated from his love forever. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus says there's going to be physical destruction coming in 70 AD. But more importantly, there's going to be spiritual destruction if you reject me. But I'm still going to go to the cross. And I'm still going to die for your sins. And I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to defeat the grave. And I'm going to give you permanent deliverance from the bondage and death associated from sin. And to do that, and here's where it gets really cool. I know you're ready, right? You ready? Okay. He comes as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And just as the blood of the Lamb was put on the doorpost to Passover, now His own blood is going to be shed on the wooden doorposts of the cross so that we would not suffer eternal death. And absolutely non-coincidentally, His death takes place at the time of the Passover. Jesus dies before the sun sets because the bodies by law couldn't be on the cross when Passover started. The work of deliverance was accomplished and it was done at the most significant time possible. Now, turn back to Acts 12 because it gets even better. Exactly one year after Jesus goes to the cross and is resurrected, Peter is arrested. And I believe that the Holy Spirit made sure we would know that detail for two primary reasons. One is that it reminds us just how much the disciples had changed over one year. Scared, timid, unsure, to the point of running away when he's arrested, to the point of swearing that they did not know him, still unsure fully of what was going on through his sacrifice, still timid at his death, still fearful that he was dead and he wasn't coming back. The disciples were weak and self-centered and showed no indication of standing for the Lord in the future, especially in the face of opposition and persecution. But after Jesus goes to heaven in Acts 1 and he says, I'm going to send a helper for you through whom you're going to do even greater works. All of a sudden, the disciples become a force for the Lord. They're unashamed of Jesus. They boldly declare the gospel. They stand up against threats on their lives. Now James has been killed and Peter's been arrested. But I want you to see very clearly from the text in Acts 12, the church does not panic. Churches should never panic, right? When difficulty comes, we should do what they do. We should gather together and call fervently on the Lord for deliverance. Because God is a God of deliverance. The church doesn't panic. The first disciples killed and Peter's arrested and things look bleak, even though Paul's been saved, but but it's still a crisis. Jesus had promised Peter, you're going to have a long life. Maybe that's why Peter's able to sleep here. But throughout the church, there's a steadfast confidence that the Lord will provide. So there's a huge difference in how the disciples are from one year to the next. But the second aspect of the anniversary is, is I believe, even more important. And that it's that nothing had changed 
in the message of what God was doing. And this powerful symbolism that we're going to see is a reinforcement of the gospel message. The fact that Peter is in jail is a reminder of the concept of bondage and slavery to sin. And there is no one that had experienced the redemption and the forgiveness of Christ more dramatically among the apostles than the one who actually denied him. But we also know from Scripture that the Lord doesn't want us to stay in bondage. That's why he does this miraculous work of delivering Peter as a picture of how he deliver us, us out of the slavery to sin through Christ. That's the image we're getting here in Acts chapter 12. Look at it. Peter has four squads of soldiers. It's not like there's one guard that he overpowers. Somebody who tried to explain away the story will say, well, Peter somehow put a sleeper hold on the guy and then wriggled his way out of the chains like Houdini and, and somehow convinced his way out. No, come on. Really? Seriously? There are four squads of soldiers. There are guards covering the cell door in front of him. All throughout the prison, there, there are guards waiting because just in just a couple hours, Peter's going to be tried. But let's assume he got through all of that. At the start of the gate, there's a, uh, the prison, there's an iron gate that leads out to the city and, and it can't be opened by anybody. There's no way, even if Peter thought about escaping, that he could have gotten out. But here in the text, we see that he's snoring. He's asleep. It's not like he's sitting up plotting, well, how am I going to get a jump on them? Or what? No, he's asleep. And the angel of the Lord comes, and he's so asleep, look at the text, that the angel, I think, kind of, it says in the text that he struck his side. In other words, it wasn't just like, hey, bud, wake up. Kind of whacks Peter. I'm sure Peter appreciated that. We all love to be woken up that way with somebody hitting us, right? And he whacks Peter and he says, Peter, get up. And as Peter gets up, the chains fall off his hands. And they walk through the door and they walk past the guards who are oblivious. And then they wander through the prison. And Peter's still kind of thinking, boy, this is a crazy dream. I shouldn't have eaten that matzah last night. I'm... I don't know what's going on, but, whew, man, this is a doozy. And then as they get to the iron gate, the iron gate just opens by itself, and they walk out onto the street, and the angel disappears. And all of a sudden, Peter comes and says, wait a second, this is not a dream. This is real. I've been delivered. And then I believe, and I'm going to read into the text here, I believe that he remembered that it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread following followed by the Passover, and he said to himself, Oh, Lord, I get it. Oh, Lord, I see it. One year after Jesus gave his life and rose again to deliver me from bondage, I have been freed from literal slavery. And now I'm going to go back to the body of Christ and I'm going to rejoice, not that I'm out of a physical jail, but that we've all been freed out of that jail cell of sin forever. Oh, praise the Lord for what He has done for us. If you haven't heard that truth before, or you have and you've rejected it all your life, let me tell you this morning, the same thing can happen to you spiritually 
that happened to Peter physically because Christ made it possible. You don't have to be chained to your sin anymore. You don't have to be sentenced to eternal death because of your rebellion against God. And if you think I'm being judgmental, I will tell you this morning, I was once in exactly the same place that you are, and so was everybody else. We're not better than you. We're not worse than you. We are all sinners before God, and we were all sentenced to death. But I want to tell you, many people in this room have been freed from that, and we've been brought out from under the death sentence, and God has said, you will be forgiven forever. Listen, God loves you this morning. He proved it by sending Christ, and he's willing to forgive you if you will turn from your sin and trust him. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, if I'm talking to you this morning, don't leave this room at the end of this service without coming up and talking to me or talking to somebody else and saying, I want to learn more about what it is to trust in Jesus Christ because you can be delivered from that sin. Now, what's fascinating is, is the reaction of Herod and the guards. And we've got to read one more section, okay? Chapter 12 of Acts, look at verse 18. Let's see how they react. When the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined his guards and ordered they be led away to execution. Then he went down to Jer- from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was led by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. When Peter isn't there anymore in the morning, The Spirit says there was no small disturbance. I would think so, wouldn't you? The prisoner is gone. There were four sets of guards that were there. He was tied up with double chains to two of the guards. It wasn't like they didn't have enough help to keep him there. And there's a spiritual principle there between the lines that I want you to see. When the Lord works in powerful ways, it produces one of two reactions, either joy or confusion. When the Lord works in a powerful way, your response will either be joy, praise the Lord, or confusion, what's the Lord doing? And you will get an indication of the maturity of your faith and the contentment of your trust by how you respond to God's work, especially when it's inexplicable. Either you praise Him and you thank Him and you rejoice in Him and you yield to Him despite the circumstances, good or bad, or you stand like Herod and the guards with your mouth kind of opening, wondering what's going on, and then responding with frustration and anger. Herod's the prime example. He is so ticked off here that he has the guards killed. He searches around. He looks at the guards. He says, what did you guys do? Who hid the key? How did you let him out? What's going on? Even though that's not logical, that even if one guard had let him out, he wouldn't have gotten past the other guards. But, but Herod is a great, typical politician. He doesn't take any blame or responsibility for his own failure, and then he goes on vacation. 
your fault. You did it. What happened? Why did you guard it? You die. I'm going on vacation. And interestingly, where does he go? He goes to Caesarea. Remember Caesarea, chapter 10? It's where Peter met Cornelius. Oh, the Lord has a sense of humor. Herod goes away. While he's there, the people of Tyre and Sidon, which were the two key cities in northern Israel, they come down looking for peace. Because they had got handouts from the government, and Herod was angry about it. See, the issues of politics never change. Everything's cyclical. They got their government handout. Herod was ticked about it. The people come down to complain, say, we want to make peace. We still want our stuff. Herod's angry. There's a conflict. And Herod decides to deal with the problem by pulling out the teleprompter. And I'm a, I'm a wonderful speaker. Tell you what we'll do. Gather all the people of Tyre and Sidon together. I need to give a speech. You kind of see him with his chin raised, can't you? I'll give a little speech. And I will impress them with my oratory prowess. Because he's a narcissist. And he thinks people will be impressed by his words. And that's exactly what happens. In his royal robes, he sits and gives a great speech. And the people are so impressed that they start to cry out, Oh, it's the voice of God! This is not a man! This, this, is, this must be God speaking to us. It's heady stuff. And it knocks up his increasingly large ego to a higher level. But instead of giving praise to God for putting him in that position, notice this, he enjoys the credit and the Lord disciplines him immediately. And the Lord strikes him with an affliction and he gets worms in his stomach and within five days he's dead. He did not give the credit to the Lord. He had every opportunity to recognize the powerful hand of God and God's offer of deliverance to all who believe. His father had been the one that the wise men came to and said, we're looking for him who's born the king of the Jews Tell me how to get to him. And that Herod, his father, had lied and said, Oh, I want to worship him too. Tell me where he is, and then I'll come and worship him. And when the wise men don't come back, he says, All male children under two die. We're going to put an end to this right now. And then this Herod had seen the rise of the church and the boldness of the apostles and the strength of their ministry as tens of thousands came to Christ and he went and examined the jail cell and looked at the chains that had held Peter and walked through the iron gates and saw where Peter had gone. But Peter wasn't there, but his heart remains hardened against God. And now God gives him another opportunity. He still could have been forgiven if he had repented of his pride in verse 23. And said to the people, I have been wrong." The God of the apostles, the God of this church is the true God. We have failed as a nation. You worship God. But he didn't say that. He said, look at me. Oh, and he basked in the glory. And even as he's raising his arms and taking the adulation of the crowd inside, he's starting to be eaten up. And he wouldn't even make it a week. How many know that the Lord will never ignore people who try to steal his glory? 
He will never look aside when somebody says, I get credit and you don't. Even Peter had done that once. When Jesus said to him at the Last Supper, Peter, Satan has asked me for permission to sift you like wheat. And Peter said, no, Lord. He scolded Jesus at the Last Supper and said, don't tell me that. I'll be arrested and go to the cross with you. And Jesus said, I tell you what, before morning breaks, you're going to deny me three times. Don't you scold me. Don't you tell me what I know. And now, on the anniversary of that time, Peter walks out of that cell and walks out of that prison and not believing what's going on, goes to his friend's house and knocks on the door and the girl's so excited she leaves him there. And I'm going to read between the lines a little bit here. As Peter stood there waiting, looking around, I have to think that he was so overwhelmed with gratitude that Jesus had forgiven him and delivered him from bondage. And now he stood there one year to the day from the day Jesus died. And he is a witness to Jesus Christ to the whole world. Over the course of that year, he had personally experienced the risen Christ and he had experienced the undeserved forgiveness of God and the calling of his life. And then he had seen God clearly move and work and had part of a ministry that had changed thousands of lives. Peter had gotten a unique perspective about how the Lord is always offering salvation and freedom from bondage. And those are the exact same experiences that you and I have had with the Lord. Peter's not unique just because he walked with Christ. Peter had the same experience of deliverance and calling and the hand of God and the calling to ministry that we have. And while we may have never been literally led out of a jail cell by an angel, if we've trusted Christ, we certainly know what it is to be freed from the control and enslavement of sin. So why would we ever go back? Peter never would have thought about walking back into that jail cell because he had been freed. So what would prompt us? Let's draw this to a close and draw some application. What would draw us to ignore the clear and enduring evidence of God's amazing deliverance and to live in sin? Turn for just a minute to Romans chapter 6. And let's get some encouragement here and some challenge for our souls and our minds this morning. Romans chapter 6. As you're turning, let me recap verses 1 to 11. In verses 1 to 11, Paul is saying that through Christ, we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over us or even influence over us because we are alive in Christ. That's what verses 1 to 11 say. You can study it later. What a tremendous passage of Scripture. And then in verses 12 to 14, he says that we are to continue in God's deliverance based on how we live. In other words, you're free from sin. Sin is dead to you. Shouldn't even influence you anymore. And now because of that fact that Christ has done through his death and resurrection, now we need to continue to live the way that God has freed us to live. Start in verse 12. Therefore, 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, there are three responsibilities. Let me give them very quickly. There are three responsibilities just in those three verses that Paul says, because you're delivered from bondage, because Christ has freed you through the sacrifice and through the blood, because you've been delivered forever, feast of unleavened bread, Passover, sacrifice of Christ, because all that has happened, here's how you're supposed to live. Number one responsibility, disobey the lusts that your body desires. Disobey the sin. It prevents it from having a place of resonance in your life. In the same way, this is a new insight, I never thought about it this way before. In the same way that we can rebel against God and disobey his call to holy living, we have the power to disobey sin. We don't have to obey it. We, oh, temptation comes. Well, I've got to yield to that. It's really strong. And the enemy is just so powerful. I don't know. No. Uh-uh. Absolutely not. God has given us the power to disobey sin and to disobey the call to dishonor the Lord. Maybe we don't think of it that way. It's, it's too easy to give in to temptation and then to chalk it up as a moment of indiscretion or, or I was weak and I just indulged and, and, and it won't happen again. But here's the reality. If we keep yielding ourselves to sin, what we're doing is we're keeping a little vacation home for our disobedience. And whenever we decide that we need a little break from God and, and, and we just need some time off, we go and visit the little vacation home and we put our feet up and say, boy, it's so restful here. That's what he's saying here. Don't let sin reign. Don't give it any place. Don't don't allow it to even have a little closet in the house of your life. Don't let it have any influence. He's not just talking about lust, sexual lust. He's talking about anything that would drive us away from God. Disobey it. Get rid of it this morning. Some of you may be caught up in, in your lust this morning for something that's not God. Disobey it. Get rid of it. Put it to death. Second responsibility, verse 13. He says, in in paraphrase, don't play with fire. The Spirit says, you've been toying with sin by participating in it. But don't go back to it. Don't go back to your old life. Live in the new one. Israel was the perfect example, and by perfect I mean awful example, of the fallacy of that thinking. After the awfulness of 400 years of Egypt, they never should have wanted to go back. But they get out into the desert and things get a little tough and there's not enough water and and God led us through the Red Sea, but he can't possibly provide for tomorrow, can he? You know what they say? Let's go back. Oh, it was so wonderful there. Remember how great it was, the buffets, the spas, swimming in the Nile, No expectations, no responsibilities. Oh, it was great. Better than this. Better than following the Lord. Why would we want to do that? 
And God keeps displaying his power and keeps saying, I'm taking you to the holy, to the promised land. It's going to be awesome. It's, it, I've prepared it for you. I promised to Abraham that I'd take you there. But, but they're self-centered and they want to go back to slavery. We've been given a transformed heart and a renewed mind. And the Spirit says to us, don't go on presenting yourselves to unrighteousness. Get rid of it. Because God's delivered you from it. And that's reinforced by the last thought in verse 14. He says, you're not under law, you're under grace. See, it always comes back to God's mercy, which has dramatically pulled us out of the bondage of sin and covered us with the blood of his sacrifice. No one who was freed at Passover, listen now, ever argued the law got us out of Egypt. No one ever got to the wilderness and said, aren't you glad that the law convinced Pharaoh to get us out? They came back to the grace of God that had delivered them. The Feast of Unleavened Bread wasn't a celebration of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are wonderful and we should live by them. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a remembrance of God's deliverance and freedom from sin. Believer this morning, never lose sight of the greatness of what God has done in your life. Sin no longer has control of you. Christ has overpowered it and he's cleansed it from your life and he's removed its control. So walk out of the jail and don't look back. Go and find other believers. They're in this room and rejoice with them that God has delivered us forever. And then tell other people who don't know about it. Stop being stubborn. Stop being proud. I was there. I was there. I know that life. But I'm telling you, Christ can deliver you. And when we do that, the Lord blesses us. Look at the last verse, verse 24. We're going to pray. Acts 12, 24. You may not be there. I'll just read it for you. I wasn't there either, so don't feel bad. It says, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Peter is free. Herod is dead. The opposition has subsided and the church is flourishing. Paul has gone from murderer to evangelist in a matter of weeks. And in the next chapter, he's going to take his first trip around the world to talk about Christ. That only happens by the hand of the Lord. There is no way we can get to Acts chapter 12 by people doing it by themselves. It was only by the hand of the Lord blessing his people as they trusted in him and saying, I will pour out upon you my spirit and I will pour out upon you things that you cannot even imagine. And you will have more power when I'm gone because I will give you my own spirit to reside within you. And when you trust in me and you call on me and you live in holiness, I will do things that are more spectacular than you can possibly imagine. I want to find out what that is, don't you? I want to see God work in that way in our midst. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for the beauty and magnificence of how you weave the story of redemption 
through everything in Scripture. We thank you that though we were once in bondage, we are now delivered forever. And it's not by anything we've done or any power of our own. It's only by Jesus Christ. So Lord, we praise his name this morning. We praise you for what you have done. And Lord, I pray this morning if there's someone in this room that has never heard that message before or has resisted it for years, that right now, if they haven't already, that they will yield their heart to you. That they will walk out of the cell that you have freed us from and will yield their lives to you and put their trust and confidence in you to save them forever. Lord, take away any timidity this morning. Take away any hesitation. Put the devil in his place right now so that hearts can hear your gospel. And Lord, for those of us that have received you and love you and trust in you, Father, break the sin that exists in our life. For some of us, it may be very strong. It may be controlling us right now. Lord, bring conviction right now. Target that area of our life that we have not surrendered to you, that we're holding on to and giving resonance. Lord, take it away. Break it right now, we ask. And as we trust in you and walk in holiness and fulfill our calling, Lord, we pray you would do magnificent, wonderful works in our midst for your glory. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit who indwells us and fills us and guides us. Lord, as we come to Holy Week, I pray that our hearts would be soft toward you, full of gratitude, overflowing with joy at what you've done. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.